0: Hey, it's Dr. Sarah and Alicia here and you are listening to the Pregnancy for Professionals podcast. Our goal is to bring forward evidence-based information from all disciplines, supporting pregnant people through their journey to becoming new parents. From physicians to midwives, nurses to physiotherapists, and everyone in between. Make sure to fill out the quick survey in the show notes to let us know which topics you are interested in learning about and to make sure we are serving you, our maternity care provider community, well. Don't forget... The information on this podcast is for educational purposes only. Please consult with your team and your community for individual medical decisions that need to be made. Check us out on Instagram at Pregnancy for Professionals to find informative and educational posts for both you and that you can use for your patients. Today, we are lucky to have Heidi Mackney, a registered midwife here in Victoria, BC, join us to talk about all things home birth. We'll review all of the evidence risks to mom and babe, who's appropriate, who's not. So Heidi, why don't you start by telling us a little bit about yourself? Hi,
1: I'm so happy to be here. I've been a midwife in community for since the summer of 2018. So just coming up on three years. So the caveat is that I'm by no means the expert in home birth, but absolutely it's part of our scope. And I have attended lots of home births and, and feel really excited to speak about it. My background is actually as a registered nurse. So Graduated from the University of Saskatchewan in 2006 and have worked as a pediatric nurse. So that's ages like zero to seventeen, and did that until I entered midwifery school and transitioned out. So I do have like a pretty lengthy healthcare background, but it's a background that I feel like really has added to my 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 skills and knowledge as a midwife, which is great. But yeah,
0: that's my background, and and yeah, just happy to dive right into the content. And can I just say that Heidi is also organized, and she pulled together <laughs> all of the articles for us to review before getting ready for this. So that is another piece that she did not tell you about herself. Okay. So why don't we get into it. First, let's talk about what is home birth? What do we describe as quote-unquote home birth?
1: Yeah, so I I think home birth people generally think it's at your house, but there's another way of talking about it as an out-of-hospital birth. So for example, when I worked and lived in Penticton, there were folks that lived a decent distance away, maybe like an hour or two outside of Penticton, were really keen to have an out-of-hospital birth. And we actually had births at the Ramada Hotel. So, So it's any site that is outside of the hospital. I know one of the midwifery practices in town has a little birth cottage that's in the back of their property. And so people use that as well. So, yeah, it would be more a, just a birth that is occurring
0: or planned to occur outside of the hospital. Awesome. Thank you. Now, let's, we're going to dig into all of the logistics around home births and who maybe would consider it and who maybe shouldn't consider it. But why don't we start with talking about kind of the evidence around home birth and its safety. And this is very much specific to those people who, quote unquote, I'm using my quote unquote my fingers here, qualify. And so that's a very specific population. So this is not all comers in pregnancy, everybody in the world. This is a very specific population, which we'll talk about a little bit later around kind of who is appropriate for home birth from a safety point of view and a logistics point of view, all that type of stuff. Why don't we dig into that? We can talk about kind of safety for the delivering person and safety for the newborn baby and look at what they've looked at in their research so far.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Candidate selection is such a crucial part of safety. So yeah, so uh, there's some really great kind of lists and examples I can give when we talk about that in a little bit. So yeah, I think a few caveats before diving into some actual research papers a, a little bit would be, obviously we all pop onto Google and do a Google search and random multiple things come up. And I think it's what's so important is to always look at data that is reflective of our own community. So when you type in home birth, you're going to get information from the Netherlands, from the UK, from birth attendance in low resource countries, from the US. And so how do you sort through, unless you have like a research background, how do you as just as like a lay pregnant person make sense of what's coming up there when you do that search? I think speaking specifically to our neighbors to the south, and this is by no means a criticism, but it's just it's an important thing to think about, is that. You're looking at a range of care provider training and skills. So in the U.S., there are about four different paths to becoming a midwife. There's trained lay apprentice birth midwives. There are home birth only midwives. There are certified professional midwives. There are certified midwives. There are certified nurse midwives. And all of them have different regulations, different kind of governing bodies, different education requirements. There's also differences among states. So some states, its home birth is illegal. Um, some it's very integrated and supported. In some states, midwives have hospital privileges and then some they don't. That, is a, that has a huge impact. If you can imagine a scenario where a home birth only midwife in a state that does not support home birth runs up against a situation where, you know, for the safety of the client and the babe needs to transfer in, guess what? That client's getting dropped off at the emerge the midwife can't come in. You're you're transferring to a care provider that does not know this client at all. You're losing all sense of connection and continuity. Not the safest way to transport. So I think that's what's really important. Even translating, there's this massive study called the Dutch home birth study. And there's even some people that critique the translation of that data. This is maybe like a generalization, but Potentially, there's genetic factors, Dutch folks being in general, can maybe a certain pelvis shape, maybe birthing in a certain way that it's, is maybe unique to that population. And can we, can we translate to that to our population here in B.C.? Very important to do that, to look at our own data and what exists here. So there's two, two folks who have done lots of research. So Eileen Hutton, she's done um, quite a few studies um, in Ontario. And then Patricia Jansen is um, someone who's done lots of research in BC. Those would be the people that I would generally, and the studies that I would generally refer my clients to to have a peek at.
0: And we can, we'll link those studies in the show notes so you guys can easily access those.
1: Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I made a, a reference list so we can throw whatever is going to be helpful your way, definitely. As a synopsis, so the SOGC, which is the Society of Obstetricians and Gynecologists of Canada, this organization that produces excellent guidelines and supportive practice documents for OBs and GPs and midwives. In 2019, so recently, they produced a guideline and some of the points that it covered really speak to how we keep birth safe. Number one was an affirmation and the emphasis on the importance of choice for birthing people and their families, understanding that they should have autonomy and they should feel empowered to make the right choice for them and how they want to birth and where they want to birth. So that's really important. The second thing is. Ensuring that there's excellent communication between the obstetric community in the hospital and the people that are facilitating out-of-hospital birth, so that there's emergency transport standards in place, that the EMS in the community is super aware, that the OBs and the GPs and the LDR nurses are all super aware that home birth is happening in the community, and the ways that we communicate to keep everyone that potentially could need to be hands on deck in a loop when someone is birthing outside of the hospital.
0: And in Victoria, we are so privileged to be in a community that does that exceptionally well. We have such collaborative care in our community, even during pregnancy. Our obstetricians don't do any primary care, so they don't see patients or clients just themselves. They work with the midwifery or the family practice practitioners to combine forces to provide great care to people. So. We are so lucky in our community that we have that. And I think that's a huge piece of the puzzle. And our LDR staff, our nurses and labor delivery, our EMS staff, everybody is really on board and works well as a team, which we need to keep our parents and our babies safe, right?
1: Absolutely. Yeah, that's exactly right, Alicia.
0: Yeah. So quickly, since we're talking
1: about Victoria for a second here. So what happens is like at 20 weeks and 36 weeks, For GPs and midwives, we send a copy of the prenatal record to labor and delivery. There's this nice filing cabinet behind the desk, which has everyone's information. And so what happens is if I'm attending someone out of hospital, when that person kicks into active labor, I actually call the labor and delivery charge nurse. And I'm like, hey, this is Heidi. I'm at a home birth. This is the client's name. They actually pull the chart. And so they have them almost pre-admitted, like it's on their radar that someone is out there in active labor planning a birth at home. And so that if I were to say, hey, you know what, things are just not going super well, there's a few kind of small concerns that are coming up, best thing to transfer in. They're like, yeah, got the file right here, totally aware of who this person is, and they've been kept up to date along the way. Um, And then if the person births at home and babe and mom are great and everything's like looking super smooth, we call and close the loop. So we're like, hey, baby boy born at this time, Everyone's doing great. And they're like, awesome, congratulations. That's so awesome. Have a good night. And I made reference as well to the EMS. So ambulance attendants absolutely are fully aware that home birth happens in the community. So they're not surprised being like, what, a home birth? So there's all, the, all kinds of pieces like that that are really important, again, to the safety
0: of how we do things in Victoria. Okay. Yeah. And so we're going to talk to a community this, ours, mm-hmm. right? So the evidence that we're looking at looks at well-established communities with home births Um, qualified attendants and appropriately selected people who are choosing to birth at home. So those are the studies that we're looking at. So let's talk about, do you want to talk about the one that was done in BC? There was one study done in BC and it looked at all births from 2000 to 2004, I believe. And these were for pregnant people who qualified, again, my fingers are doing the quotation marks, qualified for home birth. So they met the criteria from a safety point of view the pregnant person's medical stuff, the baby's medical stuff, all those types of things. And so they looked at all of the group of midwives who provided home birth, and they looked at all of the deliveries that they did, whether they were in home or in hospital. And then they also did another comparison to a group of physicians who attended hospital-based births of the same kind of cohort, so the same people who were considered low-risk and would be appropriate for a home birth, but they chose to have a hospital birth with a physician instead. So tell us about what they found. Yeah.
1: So the summary statement for this study, which again was comparing midwife assisted births and you know, with a comparable population in, to, in the hospital by a midwife or a physician. So, again, looking at similar populations, that a planned home birth attended by a qualified registered midwife was associated with really low and comparable um, rates of poor perinatal outcomes. And it was associated with reduced rates of obstetric interventions for the birthing person. So, reduced rates of epidural, needing oxytocin, like operative delivery, so forceps or vacuum, or assisted delivery or C-section. So reduced rates of obstetric interventions, and other adverse perinatal outcomes. So we always look at those two things, like what are, the, are there any benefits? And often we see in these studies, time and time again, we see benefits to the birthing person, so decreased rates of obstetric interventions. And then the other question is, is it safe for babes? How do they do? And in this study, again, just absolutely comparable rates of poor outcomes. Because In reality, poor outcomes for babes in birth are very low, whether you're looking at hospital or home. They do happen from time to time. But again, we want to make sure that those low
0: rates are comparable across home versus hospital. Exactly. And exactly. So those bad outcomes. So we're talking about significant injuries to babies or death of the baby or death of the mom. That is extremely rare in our communities because we have such robust medical systems. So not comparable to third world countries. Not even comparable to the states, a lot of people in the states don't really have access to high quality medical care because they have to pay for it like it's a very different population, so in our well supported collaborative care communities, these outcomes are extremely rare, so it's also hard for studies they have to be so huge to really tell a difference. But these studies had good amounts of people I think it was like three thousand in each group or something like that, and so a good amount a good representative representation of kind of what we're looking at so I think but it really it really Born out the safety of home birth in an appropriately selected population who wants to have a home birth. And that's another important piece of it is some people just don't feel comfortable. Some people want to have a home birth because they feel so much more comfortable at home. And they've mm-hmm. looked at the evidence and they feel really confident in their care team. And they know they're close to a hospital and, you know, they're low risk and but some people are very anxious and would be always be worried about that, and so they're not a proper candidate for home birth because they would always be concerned about what well, if something goes wrong, what's going to happen, and so they're not going to be they're going to be more comfortable in the hospital. And the other piece of the puzzle that we have to consider in Mercosuria, I take I go off on tangents. The other <laughs> thing is your partner, right? So I was doing a home birth story with somebody the other day, and her partner was totally on board and comfortable. But she said to me, you know what, if my partner hadn't have been comfortable with a home birth, we wouldn't have chosen that. Because if he had been anxious the whole time, then that would have made me anxious. And so then it wouldn't, it defeats the whole purpose. And so it was just an interesting perspective as well. Again, yeah, in an appropriately chosen population, there are benefits of birthing at home. If that is your wish after you've had a really good discussion with your care team um, and all of the other kind of pieces are there. So that's really great. What other study did you want to chat about? I think, and again, so
1: if if I pull out one of the main studies from Eileen Hutton, so she's the primary researcher in Ontario. So she looked at outcomes associated with planned place of birth among women in low-risk pregnancies. So this was in 2015. And so they looked at, I think, around 12,000 planned home births and about 12,000 planned hospital births. Again, looking at similar populations, not looking at one high-risk group and one low-risk group. And they really found, again, that in this study that planned home birth attended by a regulated midwife, where home birth is well integrated into the healthcare system, was not associated with difference in serious neonatal outcomes, but again found fewer interpartum adverse sort of um, outcomes or fewer in labor interventions for the birthing person. So yeah, so I mean it's it's showing itself to be consistent across two part two parts of Canada where midwifery again is well integrated there's lots of midwives doing births in both of our provinces. So it's nice to do a bit of a scan across Canada and see
0: similar outcomes coming up. I think and also that, both of those provinces are very well regulated as well. There's clear except, guidelines that come you know, out from the College of Midwifery Around appropriate selection and good documentation and good information to get out to soon-to-be parents and stuff mm-hmm. as well, which I think is also really important. Sorry, interrupted you. No, that's okay. And then I just—I actually
1: wanted to just scoot back to a couple points from that SOGC guideline. We talked about integration into the healthcare system, but that for specifically for midwives, so that a that they have hospital privileges. So just because you're a registered midwife does not mean that you can just perform that you can just do home birth. We talked about that example in the U.S., right? So you have to have hospital admitting privileges so that if something comes up, you get to stay with your client. You get to stay with that birthing person and be like, we're going to head to the hospital, but I'm going to be your person. I'm going to stay with you and we're going to consult the OB and ask for some of the things that we need to move your labor forward or whatever. The importance is, is as well as is having, we'll probably get to this a bit later, but having a second very qualified person available at the home birth so that you're not alone. You have two
0: people there. Ideally one Because sir. let's remember, if we have two... Exactly. If <laughs> you call them patients, you call them clients, sure. so we have two people to care for. We have yeah. a mother or a parent, a pregnant person, delivering person, and we have a newborn baby. So we need one person there who's qualified, who can manage any obstetrical or neonatal issues at the birth. So we have that in hospital with our... We always have... We have two nurses in the room and the care provider. And so the same thing at home. You need at least one person to support each of those people that you're caring mm. for. Absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Can we talk about the yeah. Netherlands study a little bit? So I thought this was a really cool study. So in the Netherlands, they have a huge, I'm not going to remember, I wrote down the numbers, but I don't know where it is. They have a huge amount of home births, right? So about, I think over 50% of their pregnant people deliver at home. Mm-hmm. I'm assuming those are the low risk population. And so they have a really a really good data set. But like Heidi was saying before, it's interesting when you look through the study. And so Their studies show that there's no adverse outcomes to having a home birth. And and again, a well-supported, I I suspect they have a very well-supported home birth kind of program and their kind of population is well-versed on it. It's a part of their community. And so it's very common in their community. They're very much prepared. So it was interesting, though, reading through kind of the outcomes. So certainly more of the people who chose to have a home birth were of a bit older age, a bit better, higher socioeconomic status, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and they were having not their first baby, but their subsequent babies at home versus people who either choosing hospital or were unclear. And then the data supported that home birth is safe, but the poor outcomes, there weren't, again, very poor outcomes don't happen that often in such well-supported communities, happened with younger people or people who were not of Dutch descent. And again, that's there's probably a genetic piece. Like those Netherland people, they're very tall, right? They're very tall and so they're yes. very well proportioned for giving birth. <laughs> Whereas other members of communities, right? I always say to people of, who are very petite, pregnant people, who have chosen to create a human being with a very large mm-hmm. person, that sometimes our bodies are not meant to... It's more challenging for us to push out babies that are not of our dimensions, and so that that may have also been, I'm trying to say that politically correctly, like that may have also come into place, right? So certain ethnicities have just naturally more challenges with childbirth than others. And we know that. And so that was a really interesting kind of finding, I thought, out of that study.
1: Yes. Yeah. And it's it's a huge cohort. Like they looked at 500,000 low-risk planned births and then like a home cohort and a hospital cohort. But again, even in the Netherlands, it was like low-risk, Alicia keeps saying this, low-risk clients who are... Screened and appropriate candidates in a maternity care system that facilitates choice. That their midwives are properly trained. They have a really good referral system. Great transport plan from home to hospitals. All those factors play in. But yeah, that's it's a really it's a great data set. It's
0: a huge a huge population that they looked at, which is really cool. Yeah. All right. So from the data, it looks like in communities like ours in Victoria, well-supported, good integrated teams, good healthcare systems. That home birth in the appropriate selected population is we can consider safe
1: Mm -hmm.
0: as long as you've got good quality. And we'll get into all of the other stuff. So can we back up the bus a little bit and talk about how do we determine whether it is safe for a pregnant person to consider a home birth? What are the things that you think about as a midwife who um, provides home birth?
1: Yeah. So I feel really well supported by our college. So we have excellent documents and guidelines which really help to support our scope of practice because let's be honest like as midwives we always say we are experts in normal birth that's like this like midwifery catchphrase that that is used and I think I think for us, our college really recognizes that we're not high risk specialists, although we have we have training to absolutely be able to recognize emergencies. That's why we have incredible obstetricians in our communities that can support us when things move outside of the range of normal. So our college really supports us with kind of guidance around screening and this idea of candidate selection. And it, and it really is it begins the, at the, the first meeting when you do a history and physical with someone sometimes clients come into care who have serious medical conditions. They have heart or kidney disease. They are insulin-dependent diabetes. They maybe have triplet a triplet pregnancy. All examples of people that probably would not be considered low risk and, won't be, and will not be considered low risk um, at any point in their pregnancy. So those would be people that we would absolutely encourage to birth in the hospital at the onset of labor. So then that's, again, another point where we evaluate, hey, are we still low risk? Are we still good to do this? Important that the person is term. So anything less than 37 weeks and zero days is considered preterm, and we would absolutely advise the person to birth in the hospital. So that there's a pediatrician present in case that little kiddo just needs a little bit of extra help on the outside. So, you know, so term, making sure the baby is head down, confirmed head down. So that is not a bum coming down. And if, it can
0: be, we can be surprised sometimes.
1: Hey, I, and I've done it. I've been like at a, at home and I'm like, that is a scrotum, I'm sealing.
0: <laughs> and uh, yeah, and we need to go to the hospital.
1: And we, so it happened. Have have
0: yeah, we, one of our uh, colleagues in our community. Has a saying, if you haven't missed a breach, you're not doing enough deliveries. Exactly. Or you're not doing enough obstetrical care, right? And it happens. So it sometimes happens. we're surprised that there's, oh, look, there's a bum not a head. Okay. Yeah.
1: Exactly. And so then, and then through, throughout labor with someone at home, we are constantly scanning the environment, assessing the client, really taking in data on an ongoing basis. And it's not just like a one-time check-in. So in labor, there can be... Um, things that also preclude someone from continuing at home. So if the birthing person spikes a fever, that's usually not a good sign. If they have a true fever of 38.5 or above, generally speaking, that is is a reason to have a bigger care team involved. If, as we're listening with a Doppler regularly, as we would in the hospital, that baby's heartbeat tells us something that is not normal, that is also a reason, obviously, to move to a hospital and have the bigger care team involved. So we're getting into a little bit of maybe what it
0: would look like to transfer from a home birth to hospital birth. Yeah. Do you want I just want to I want to back up. So yeah, sure. in terms sure. of kind of high risk pregnancies, we're talking about certain medical conditions. So diabetes, heart disease, brain disease. So if you've had multiple strokes in the past, you're not going to qualify for a home birth. If you have other diseases like that that need extra monitoring and care in your pregnancy. Now, in Victoria, we have a different system than many communities. So most of those Patients or clients would not be cared for by a midwife in some other communities. But in Victoria, we work really well collaboratively. So they see both the obstetrician and the uh, midwife or whatever specialist they need to. And same with family doctors. In some communities, we wouldn't be able to care for those patients. They'd go Mm -hmm. on to a higher risk. But in Victoria, we have such a great community that we're able to. Other things that can come up during pregnancy. So having a placenta previa or a low-lying placenta. You're not going to qualify for a home birth because that's really dangerous. And there'd be some kind of other things that come up with. So if you get gestational diabetes, I'm not sure if diet controlled is OK for home birth versus if you're on insulin, then you wouldn't be at hospital because we need to be very carefully monitoring your blood sugars. What about gestational diabetes? Does that qualify?
1: Yeah. So I think controlled diet controlled gestational diabetes. I've definitely had some clients that have like with an OB consult and really good informed choice discussions have had a, have had home births. And, yeah. Especially if we're like, wow, this baby's a perfect size. Seven five on ultrasound, like looking great. Everything's been like beautifully controlled with diet. You're not a high risk person. And often you're discharged out of the, the gestational diabetes program and turned back over to the, okay, you're healthy and normal. Other things that can Other, come up is if like maybe with your first birth, you had some blood loss that was outside of the normal range of blood loss after the baby was born. So you have a history of a postpartum hemorrhage. That might be a reason you would want to have a serious conversation about, hey, maybe the safest place is to be in the hospital. If you are someone who's had a prior cesarean section, I think that the strong recommendation from care providers in this community is that if you're trying for a vaginal birth after having a cesarean, that the safest place would be to be in the hospital. If we on ultrasounds know that there's something going on with that baby that's not totally normal, so that baby is not growing perfectly looking a little small, there's signs of that there would be a need for a pediatrician to be present at the delivery, then obviously that those clients would absolutely
0: be recommended to have a hospital birth. Same thing probably if you have a very big baby. Yeah, sure. <laughs> Other things that we look at is the amount of fluid in your uterus around your baby, because we know that's a sign of how well your placenta is working. So I'm assuming that if we diagnose you of an oligohydramnial, or very low fluid, we worry that your placenta is not functioning well. So we want to be very vigilant around um, those babies during delivery because sometimes they can get stressed a little bit more easily. So that would be another reason kind of that you would qualify for a hospital birth. I have a couple of questions for you, Heidi. I'm going to put sure. Heidi on the spot. She said, I All don't right. want to just be lecturing. I'm like, don't worry about that. <laughs> I'll fuck you a lot. So sometimes, oftentimes, actually, we see nuchal cords on an ultrasound. We're doing an ultrasound for another reason. And we see nuchal cords. We, I as care provider, I don't tell the patient that because they're going to be, my patients are in hospital. We're going to be closely monitoring it. And if it becomes an issue, it's fine. My son was born with two nuchal cords and it didn't really become an issue until he was almost out, but then he was all, he was fine. But in terms of a home birth planning, if that came up in an ultrasound, would, is that something that obviously you would have a discussion with your client around, but is that something that you would advise having a hospital birth or not?
1: I I don't think so. Obviously, yes. Having a conversation with the client, making sure that they're really well informed about the findings of that ultrasound. In my experience, and again, I have not been practicing that many years, but in, in what I've read and conversations that I've had with experienced long-term mid- midwives, I think the important thing is to not presume something's going to be a problem because nine times out of 10, nuchal cords are absolutely not problematic. There's this really interesting technique. the baby's the baby's born and you feel, oh yeah, there's a loop of cord around the neck. There's this really cool maneuver where you can do what's called somersaulting the baby out. And it's, it, it works beautifully, and it's, it rarely are those nuchal cords problematic. Now, sometimes they are, but it's before the baby comes out. So if that nuchal cord is tight, we're gonna hear the baby's heartbeat do some changes when we're listening with a Doppler. And if we hear those, and within a short period of time, if they're not responsive to changing the birthing person's position or trying something different, we don't, we don't mess around. We, we transfer in, absolutely. So sometimes nuchal cords can cause some fetal heart rate decelerations in labor. And then we just take those seriously because when the baby's still on the inside, we don't really know what's causing that deceleration. And we take them all very seriously. But yeah, but I don't think the finding on an ultrasound would, would
0: preclude someone from a home birth. Awesome. Another thing that might come up during labor is if there's meconium. So what meconium is, is when baby has their first poop inside. Can be totally normal, especially if you're over your due date, but sometimes can lead us to think that there might be something going on with baby that we need to be a little bit more careful around. What about meconium in labor at home? Yeah, absolutely. So now we're getting
1: into reasons that we would recommend a transfer from home to hospital. And these are conversations that we have 36 weeks or even prior to with clients so that they're not surprised. We're not springing something on them at, the, at their beautiful plant home birth. And we're like, oh, we're seeing this thing. We got to go. And they're like, what? They're well informed. They know what these things are. These kind of like yellow and orange flags that come up on the field that are like, hey, you know what? We need to expand our care team. That's what's safest for you and babe. And we really hope that over the course of the person's pregnancy, they develop a trust in us. So that they're like, yeah, my midwife's got my back. Like they know what's up and they're going to they're going to make the safest recommendation for me. part of it is... I always say they're common sense things. Like when I read this
0: list, they seem to me to be quite common sense. They're not... What were you going to say, Lushen? Oh, I was going to say, uh, again, that's another thing, having a really good trust in your care Mm -hmm. provider. And another thing that I think is really important that we don't... I always... I have the utmost respect for midwives because they, I think, are put in situations that I am never put into. And one of those is some people shoes are very for whatever reason and it can be a history of trauma it can be a history of we don't know the reasons people do the things that they do and oftentimes sometimes we find out but sometimes we don't are very scared of the hospital and very scared of the kind of medical system for who knows why in people's history and they are very adamant about wanting a certain thing wanting a home birth wanting to stay far in the country whatever that is and we have this amazing group of colleagues called midwives and doulas, but midwives who role is to support people in their informed choice. But it gets, it can get into a tricky situation. I imagine if your care provider doesn't actually feel like you're making a safe choice or you're going against the kind of mandated guidelines that you're trying to follow, but the patient is making the choice that they truly, honestly believe is the best choice mm-hmm. for them and their family. And so I think it's really important for people to recognize, and we don't have to go into, we're not going to go into the debates about that, but having trust in your care provider mm-hmm. and also recognizing that they are a part of this experience as well. And so if they feel unsafe in an experience, that's an important thing to listen to and recognize as well. I don't know if that's something that you come up with very often, but I think it's, I think it's a really important thing for There's, We are, we, our job is to create An opportunity for a pregnant person and her baby to have the best birth they can, but also our job is to keep them safe. Mm -hmm. And sometimes those two things can be at odds with each other. And we have what's called these moral, I forget what the term is, but like this moral dilemma on supporting, doing our job to support the pregnant person in their decisions, but also doing our job to do what we think is safest for them and their baby. I, again, don't get into that situation very often because I don't do home births. We have occasionally had patients who have just had a home birth at home, sometimes accidentally, and then they come yeah. into hospital, but yeah. sometimes planned and never talked to anybody with us and they didn't have any care team there. Um, but we would never go to somebody's home to support somebody who we don't believe kind of qualifies because we don't do that. I'm rambling a bit, sorry.
1: That's okay. Yeah, this is a whole another podcast. But I, I think if I can speak just a few points to that, I think it is just so important that that my personal perspective is that regardless of someone's choice that they continue to feel respected, they continue to feel heard, that our care still remains trauma informed, it remains kind of harm reduction, a harm reduction approach and it honors the story that's coming behind that those decisions that person makes. There's actually a really cool obstetrician named um, Dr. Andrew Kataska who has done quite a bit of research around what we what he calls informed refusal. So again, so knowing that your care provider has a strong, you know, I recommend that you do not have a home birth. And this idea of informed refusal and how to continue to hold space for that person in a respectful way that's not coercive or demeaning or bullying, but yet still tries to honor Yeah. The, the sort of moral piece for the care provider. So, yeah. So I think it's not often that we come up with it, but absolutely I have in these last three years of practice. Absolutely. I have had um, situations like that. And there's lots of things that we do. We continue to communicate with our broader team. We write letters that are on the patient's chart. We, we have conversations with the OB. We, we ensure that we're doing everything that we can to support ourselves and to support the client and to continue to make things safe. And let's be honest, Someone having an unattended, unassisted home birth is less safe than having a midwife there, even if, or a care provider there, even if it's not what we would have recommended. So anyways, no.
0: I think maybe, yeah, we'll have to close Yeah, that we up. digress, right? Okay, we're going to go back. So, yeah. Okay, so let's talk about some reasons that we shouldn't have a home birth baby-wise. So those would be like known, known issues that can come up at birth that they're going to need extra support or we highly suspect that right so that's less than 37 weeks that's kind of babies who aren't growing as we would expect that's baby was with like known structural anomalies absolutely those types of things would be contraindicated to having a home birth or to suggesting a home birth in terms of is there like a, a guideline around distance to hospital do you guys have a discussion around that
1: Yeah. So if you look at, I just reviewed like a PowerPoint presentation around like rural birth in Alberta, but I think the 30 minute rule is, because that's even for, I think for GPs. And if you get, if you have privileges to admit patients to the hospital, they ideally say you need to be able to live within a 30 minute distance. So if you have a client that's like, I'm heading to the hospital, that you could be there ideally within 30 minutes to meet them there. And so I think that's the general rule. There are people like Shenaken Lake or Mill Bay, or like people over the Malahat, and then okay, we got to think about distance, and you got to think about weather, and is it snowing? Traffic. And is it winter and traffic, and there's so many things, and that's why again, sometimes we have folks who live a bit further away, but choose to have their baby at the little birth cottage or they choose to have a hotel birth so that they can be closer. But yeah, I think that's definitely a piece of it. I'm just going to back up, Alicia. We started talking about reasons to transfer. And, and again, I talk about this with my clients so that they're super well aware, but I've broken it down into a fairly concise list. So if we look about, if we look at like the birthing person, things in labor, why they might want to transfer in to the hospital. Sometimes it's maternal; It's the person's request. They're like, that's it. I just have a feeling. I just want to go to the hospital. And we're like, cool, let's pack up and go. No problem. Sometimes it's for pain control. Sometimes people just are like, I need that epidural. I want that epidural. And we're like, okay, let's make a move. Uh, Sometimes despite all our tricks and tips and things, the person just isn't progressing in labor. Stuck at six centimeters, no matter what we're trying, just still at six centimeters. And we just know that we need a few little tools at the hospital. Sometimes it's exhaustion if the person has been in labor for Along early labor and is just fatigued sometimes an epidural can save that person because they get to rest and and then get their energy back for the work of active labor and pushing that's to come if there's any abnormal bleeding during the labor if the person spikes a fever if the blood pressure rises so those would be things in labor that we would be like okay you know what we need to expand our care team postpartum for the birthing person so Sometimes there's a little bit more blood loss than we're comfortable with. We have all the tools and tricks at home that you would have access to, those kind of initial steps to managing a bleed that's a little bit more than what's normal. And most of the time, these postpartum hemorrhages respond beautifully to those first line therapies. If not though, we don't mess around. It's like a call to 911 and we move in. If there's any significant tearing, which again it is rare to have what we call a third and fourth degree tear, not common in any context. But if there are situations where it's hey, actually you need an obstetrician to do this repair, I'm not comfortable doing it, we would move in. Sometimes the placenta is a little bit stubborn and doesn't want to come out within a safe time frame, and so then we move in. So those would be factors postpartum when we look at baby in labor. So Alicia already mentioned meconium, so meconium is baby's first poop. Sometimes they're rascals and they take that poop on the inside. So when the water breaks we see evidence of kind of this brown, green, yellow tinge or flecks in the fluid. That can mean if the baby is like 41 weeks and two days and they're just like ready, like their little anal sphincter is ready to poop. And sometimes it's just this little squirt of fluid. And it just means that the baby is like mature and ready to be born. But sometimes it can mean that there's been an episode of distress for the baby, that they've had an episode of lack of oxygen, for example. And we can't always tell what that is. Um, we want to make sure that they don't breathe any of that into their lungs when they're born. And so having a pediatrician at the birth is recommended and a closer monitoring. So that would be a reason we would have a conversation about going in. If that baby is born and they are, there's I know abnormalities, things, the physical things that we're finding on our assessment that we're like, wow, that was not seen on ultrasound. We need evaluation with a pediatrician, we would move in. Fetal heart rate, sorry, I guess that was postpartum, fetal heart rate abnormalities. So again, dips in that heartbeat that are not responsive to the birthing person changing positions or a bit of IV fluid. We don't mess around. We make a move quickly um, to have a closer monitoring of that baby. Again, a surprise breach or if that baby is malpositioned in any way. So sometimes that actually means that the baby is standing side up or their head down, but they're backwards and think it's just messing with the progress in labor. Those are things that will make us um, think about going in. And then postpartum, so again, an abnormality on the babe or a physical feature that was not picked up on ultrasound that we would want to be explored sooner rather than later. If that babe isn't transitioning well from inside to outside, they're breathing a little bit too quickly, not controlling their temperature really well, needing a more kind of challenging resuscitation. So not just a few, not just a little bit of stimulation and a few puffs of air, but a bit more of a resuscitation to get them going on the outside. Obviously, we would not hesitate to move to the hospital. So. All those things
0: I think are again are common sense, and they they really make sense in the context of safety. Yeah, totally. And I think that's another piece of the puzzle is like hoping for a home birth, but not having your heart set on one,
1: right? Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. when you
0: are thinking about home birth, planning for a home birth, but also recognizing that there's a lot of things that may derail that plan for you, and it's having so what we call birth preferences as opposed to a birth plan. And we've got a great kind of download that you can fill out and start thinking about those things. But what would you like? But if something happens, when are you okay to change that plan? And so having preferences that you think about, but recognizing that there's, we have little control over these processes. These little babies have a mind of their own sometime. And so then we have to modify our plans. And that's those are those reasons that we would you would transfer in. So when you are chatting with people about home births, talk to me a little bit about like, how do you get their environment set up properly? What's the conversation around that? Do you, is there like a... Mm-hmm. a a purchasing list that they get and they have to grab all this stuff. Like, how does that kind of work?
1: Yeah, so I think most midwifery clinics have their sort of little like cheat sheet list of these are the things that are good to have on hand. Honestly, you don't need a lot. So if you're planning to use your bathtub or your shower, have a birth tub to use in labor, having, I say, go to Value Village, Give them a couple of washes. Have a stack of old towels, like a nice stack. Give yourself like eight nice towels. Have lots of good receiving blankets and not your like pristine white muslin ones. We want that baby to be able to have warm receiving blankets, keeping them dry, keeping them super cozy. So a stack. Sometimes you show up and there's two receiving blankets. I'm like, it's not really enough. So like 10 receiving blankets. A shower curtain or a mattress protector to make sure that you are not destroying your mattress with some, and I of, learned the, the other some day. of the birth
0: fluids that come with it too. <laughs> double make your bed yeah yeah, so exactly mattress protector and a sheet and then another mattress protector and a sheet so after you deliver you can just go back and take off the top layer put I learned that the other thing I learned is have an extra big hot water tank if you're getting a birthing tub Mm
1: -hmm.
0: yeah definitely you can run out of hot water pretty fast
1: that's one thing that I hear some people say they're like the hospital you never run out of hot water that's very true So some people will have- No tubs tubs here in
0: Victoria though. No
1: showers, but no tubs. So yeah, and then a lot of midwives will do, they will do like a antenatal um, home visit like around 36 weeks to get the lay of the land. Be like, okay, see where you live. Google Maps was a bit weird. So now we totally know- we ask people to have their lights on. They'll tie a couple of balloons if the, if their house is down a dark driveway and maybe in Saanich or something. So just tie some balloons so that there's an obvious sort of the house numbers are well lit. Tricks like that are important, right? Because you're often showing up at two o'clock in the morning and you're like, it's super dark. I can't see where I'm going. It, it, simple things like having like electrical outs, outlets in the right spot. So we always, one of the key things is having like a table height area where we can have a baby station. So if that baby needs a bit of help and our attention, we can get to that baby and have a place that's set up. And we have a suction machine. We have a heating pad. We have a few things that require having access to just like an outlet. And so some people will have one of those kind of like those power bars. So we make sure people have things like that. An area is clear. It's clutter-free. If you're planning on using water and planning to have your baby in, in the tub, we also say you need to have an alternative spot you need to have your bed made or the, the couch prepared or something because often we do say hey you know what i need you to get out of the tub like i can't assess properly i need you to move out of the water for safety and you need to have a second place set up there making sure that there's area like a, a clear sort of dining room table where you can pull up pull out our charts and our computers and do our charting so it's pretty simple things but it really is nice to have the lay of the land before i've been in situations where i've birthed in very cluttered, very chaotic, tight environments, and it didn't feel good. So lots of midwives will say, ah, I could birth a baby in a closet. Like we don't need a lot. And it's true. We don't need a lot. But we do bring a level one hospital to your house. And it's, it's a kind of contained, nicely packaged little unit of supplies that we bring, but it's, it still is a decent amount of stuff. And we need to be able to set up so that we can like access all of our emergency equipment in the rare times that we need to use it. We need to be able to have it laid out so that we can be like, boom, grab, boom, grab, like everything. So cleared off dressers, that tidied area, super
0: important. Yeah. And then, so you brought, what does the midwife bring to the birth? What kind of equipment do you guys have with you? You've briefly touched on that.
1: Yeah. So when I heard someone say a level one hospital, I was like, yeah, that's actually pretty accurate. So if you break it down, think about the birthing person. So we have all of the birth instruments that you would have access. We actually get them from the hospital. We have a program. So birth instruments for the delivery, suture instruments for afterwards to do any kind of gentle stitching afterwards if needed. And then emergency equipment for the birthing person. So we have an oxygen tank. We have all of the medications required needed, like needed for a hemorrhage management, for example. We have a full resuscitation kit for babes. So we have Again, oxygen and the suction machine, um, the ability to give them like breaths of air if they're not breathing on their own, the ability to intubate them, to put a breathing tube down their throat if they are really not breathing on their own and need that extra support. Emergency equipment for Babe if they're requiring even an extra level, like something like epinephrine, the ability to put in like IV catheters and urinary catheters. So we bring all of that sort of emergency equipment to start an IV, to give someone IV fluids. Yeah, so really... Any of that first-line stuff that you would find in a labor and delivery room, we have that with us at a home birth.
0: Awesome. And then the other thing is that you also bring a friend.
1: Yeah. Yeah, exactly. So usually it's one midwife that would attend. So if someone calls and we go and assess them and we're like, great, like you're five to six centimeters, you're in active labor. Awesome. Often it's fine. We set up our equipment. We monitor the babe and listen to the heart rate every 15 minutes, as same as we would in the hospital. and. Yeah, so if it's someone who's having their second baby, we anticipate things might move quickly. We would definitely say eight centimeters, we're going to call our second attendant to come. First time mom, often pushing is can take a little while. And so we just, it's that anticipatory timeline around when to call your second attendant to come. The second attendant, most in most cases, is another midwife. But in, in Penticton, for example, there was a bunch of the labor and delivery nurses that were certified to be our second attendants. And so Alicia made reference to this, but usually the primary midwife who's been there through the whole progress that the the whole kind of progress of labor would stay attached to the birthing person and be like, gonna deliver the baby, gonna be responsible for managing any stitching or, or bleeding or anything like that. And the second attendant is there to receive the babe, So they're there and they're trained with something called neonatal resuscitation, something that all OBs and GPs and every labor and delivery nurses and everyone is trained in regularly, the ability to really support a babe that's not transitioning well on the outside. So that's who that second person is there for.
0: Yeah. Awesome. Okay. You've had a great discussions through labor. You and your client have deemed they're appropriate for a home birth. You've gone to the client's house. You've got it all ready. You've gone there. You've set up all your stuff. You've delivered this little beautiful baby's now lying on their parents' chest and starting to try to breastfeed. And then what? How long do you stay at the, ho- at the house for? What do you do over the next few days? Because I in hospital, we've got our amazing part of nurses to yeah. show you how to birth a baby and help you with breastfeeding and all those types of things. And I imagine for a first-time parent, especially in the time of COVID, mm-hmm. when they don't have much support so you can come in, like you guys, I know you guys do amazing follow-up and are very much there over the next few days mm-hmm. supporting, but what does that kind of postpartum piece look like?
1: Yeah. So it looks very much. So if you have your baby in the hospital, so either the midwife or the LDR nurse stays for about two hours in the delivery room with you. And, and the main things that we're looking for is, is this baby transitioning well? Are they breathing beautifully? Are they pink? Are they alert? Do they have nice strong tone? Are they like hewing at the breast? Are they doing all their normal newborn things. Is their newborn exam really normal? Making sure that for the birthing person, that they've got a bit of Tylenol and Advil on board, that their bleeding is safe, their uterus is nice and contracted, helping them with breastfeeding, getting them up to empty their bladder, helping them to have a shower. There's just like this range of things that we make sure are attended to in that first kind of two hours. So it's, it's really the same things. Um, often midwives will stay between two and three hours. But for sure, before we drive away, we are making sure like that baby has latched and had a good feed. Bleeding is like absolutely normal. Mom's been unable to pee. Like we, we don't leave until we know that all of these boxes have been ticked. And we just, it's actually just like such a beautiful moment to tuck this family into their bed and be like, okay, great. So one, they have access to the pager. So there's at any point, day or night, a midwife can return to assess if they have questions or they can call with questions. Our college guides us to within the first 24 hours of birth to do a return home visit, so we don't go longer than 24 hours before we see them again at home, and so that usually it's like day one, day three, day five, day seven, or day one, three, six, and we, we see them very regularly in that first week again, making sure that breastfeeding is going well, that pain is well controlled, baby's still looking beautifully normal and so I think yeah, so we do a lot of follow- up that's a lot of education as well, so it's hey, these are the reasons I want you to call me. We talk about what's normal bleeding and what's not normal bleeding. We talk about normal newborn behavior in that first week. And like at any point, if there's anything that is concerning, give us a call. So we really empower these folks with information so that they know what to look for and they know when to call us urgently. If there's anything that arises. And great
0: follow-up too, which is I think another really important piece is that excellent follow-up, which is great. Awesome. Thank you. That was a pretty comprehensive thing. Oh, one other thing I want to, mm-hmm. if we plan, so you guys bring this huge kit to the home to plan just in case. And then if you don't need it, wonderful. And I'm presuming you also get your clients to plan for going to hospitals, making sure that they've packed their yeah. hospital bag and all that good stuff and everything.
1: Absolutely. yeah we, all, we always say that, especially if we've got to move quickly. And again, I, the caveat is that, the vast majority of transfers are not urgent and they're they're in your own car. Like they're not, it is like we always call the ambulance. It's actually quite rare that we would actually need an ambulance transfer. Lots of times it's just in your own car. But yeah, always planning, always having that in the back of your mind. And I just, I'll just close. I listened to this podcast recently. I don't, maybe some of the, the birth, a lot of the birthing world maybe knows about it, but it's called The Longest Shortest Time. And it was it was talking about this idea of feeling like a failure if you didn't accomplish your goal of a certain type of birth, whether that's birth without an epidural or a planned home birth or something, and how the commentary of this host was that sometimes this description or this idea of a plant home birth is so intoxicatingly like attractive that it really gets people into this tunnel vision of I have to have that, and then if it doesn't happen, then it ends up leading the person to feel like they failed somehow. And it's just so important that people just really try to work with their care provider around setting, like, really reasonable expectations. We know from the research that even for folks that plan home birth, that doesn't end up happening at home actually have better outcomes. So it's it's just, again, what Alicia said, just being really fluid and flexible. And if I've learned anything, and I'm sure Alicia can echo this, birth is so humbling. And it takes us on journeys that we don't expect sometimes. And, and I think having a really like humble and open attitude towards birth for all of us is just like a really good place to be,
0: so. I agree 100%, which is why Dr. Sarah and I started doing this because yeah, we think it's so important and we see people coming out of their experience disappointed or traumatized from it because they had this vision in their mind of what it would be like and it, they didn't get there. They were healthy, their baby was healthy and I know that's their ultimate goal but they didn't get that vision that, you know, they had imagined or society had told them that they should have or whatever it was. And so we want to like present good evidence-based stuff that is and realistic expectations so that you can go in and have that ability to be fluid with your plans and really come out of it remembering that that moment that your baby was first put on your chest and you felt mm-hmm. them and you heard them and that warmth. And you look at your partner, if you have a partner and just see the love in their eyes and that's what we want people coming out with. Yeah. Not disappointed because they didn't get X, Y, or Z within that process. So I agree with you hundred percent. Awesome. Thank you, Heidi. Such You're a great so chat. Welcome. Sorry guys, that was a long one, but I think of, I hope a really good one. <laughs> All right. Thank you so much. Yeah. It was a pleasure being here. Thanks for listening. Make sure to check out our website at www.shefoundhealth.ca and to sign up for our community for weekly bump blasts. Make sure to check us out on Instagram or Facebook at she.found.motherhood and head on over to your favorite podcast app and leave a review and a five-star rating. If you enjoyed this podcast, take a pic of yourself listening to it and share it on social. Make sure to tag us on it so we know to keep making them.